Today's scripture text is Micah 6, 8, and Romans chapter 15, verses 5 through 7. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. This is God's word. Okay, we're going to get together in a second. Thank you, Steve. Um, I want to start off by just talking about Micah 6.8 for a couple of minutes just to frame this morning's uh, theme. Um, as many of you know, tomorrow is the uh, MLK holiday, and uh, we want to make sure that because we are an interracial church that we don't just do a couple of minute video and then move on and get, get busy with our series, but we actually honor something that is at the heart of the history of our country the heart of the struggle. And when I say the struggle, I don't mean only the struggle for African Americans pursuing equal civil rights, but the struggle that we all experience as racial tension and bigotry continues to be a factor that we all have to face together today. It affects you no matter what color your skin is. Racial tension and bigotry affects you. Injustice affects you. If it's your story, it's my story, and vice versa. So I want to take just a couple of minutes and talk about Micah 6.8, and then I'm going to ask my friend Daniel to introduce himself, say a couple of words about himself, and then um, uh, we're going to have sort of an interview, and he's going to say some things that I think are really helpful for us to hear. And uh, I want you to know, though, that uh, from the beginning, here is the goal today. This isn't just... Um, an observation of an important historical artifact. That's not why we're doing this today. We're doing this today because it is clear that in our country, and sadly in the church, people do not know how to have safe, honest, humble, curious conversations on the subject of race. And I think that if we really are the church of Jesus Christ, if we really are bought with the blood of Jesus and the spirit is residing in us now, then the church should be showing the world how to discuss and work through and wade through the tension that we are all experiencing in our lives. The church should be showing people how to do that. And so it is our intent to lead our church in such a way that we know how to have safe and curious conversations about race without people blocking each other on Facebook. That's our goal. So I um, want to take a moment and read Micah 6.8 again. He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Now, Micah... Uh, Micah is prophesying a little over 700 years before Jesus, long time before Jesus. Micah is prophesying 
to the, to the nation of Israel, specifically the southern kingdom, which is called Judah. By this time in Israel's history, Israel was fragmented into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Micah was primarily prophesying to the southern kingdom of Judah, and he prophesied not only that the northern kingdom would be destroyed by the Assyrians and they would be carried off into captivity, but he prophesied a rebuke to the southern kingdom, which is why he says, he being God, God has told you, O man, what is good. God has already said through the law, through Moses' writings, hundreds of years before that, almost a thousand years before that, what we should do as followers of God, of Yahweh. And I'm reminding you, and one of the things that we're studying in our study on the minor prophets, and one of the, one of the issues that we're going to be covering, is that the prophets were God's covenant enforcers. They reminded the people of God when they were failing what God expected of his people. And so this is a rebuke to the people of God. Now I want to say a couple of things about this and then we'll go ahead and move on. Um, For Micah, true religion was less about the pomp and circumstance of the institution. And it was more about the practice of personal and social righteousness. A lot of us, if we've been raised in the church, when we hear the word righteousness, we automatically think how much we read our Bibles, how much we pray, are we sexually moral, do we cuss, are we good people? That is not only what the scriptures have in mind when the word justice comes up. Justice is a two-sided coin. On one side is personal righteousness, reverence to God, submission to God. On the other side of that coin is social justice. Social justice. The liberals didn't make that up. God did. God did. Okay? So we have to hear it. We have to put our political baggage, scoot it off the table, and we've got to hear God's word from God's point of view. Okay? So it was less about pomp and circumstance and more about personal and social righteousness. And so Micah leads into this famous oracle to to love kindness and to walk humbly with God and to do justice with a couple of verses prior to that that are super sarcastic. And so he says in Micah 6, verses 6 and 7, these words, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old, like cows, not calves, uh, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? Will he be pleased with that? Will he be pleased with 10,000 rivers of oil? Will he be pleased with that? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? The fruit of my body for the sin of of my soul. Micah's being sarcastic. He's calling out the Jews because they go through all the pomp and, st- pomp and circumstance of religious institutional practice, yet their hearts are far from God. And so you need to know this also about Micah. Micah identifies the practice of true religion with three functions. Do justice, love kindness, not just be cool with kindness, Love kindness. And three, walk humbly with God. Walk humbly with Him. 
He says, this is what the practice of our faith looks like on the outside. This is what we should be going for. Now, I want to make a couple of points before we get into the interview. He's not dismissing the importance of institutional religion. He's not. He's not dismissing the importance of sacrifice and offering and oil and all the other things that the Israelites did to repent of their sins. He's not in favor of an unrooted, isolated, personal faith. That's what he's not, he's not saying now. He's not implying that the architecture of our faith lacks importance. He's rebuking Israel because they had, they had a spiritual architecture. They had the law or God's word. They had the temple. They had sacrifices and all the other things that they did. And yet, even though this architecture was intended to reshape their affections and reshape their practice so they looked more and more like God, the architecture became meaningless. That architecture, all the worship, all the things that they did was like putting lipstick on a pig. That's what it devolved into. And so we need to remember that Mike is not saying forget institutional religion. The practice of Christianity, the attending of services together, the singing of songs together, studying the Bible together, fellowshipping with one another, breaking bread, entering into and experiencing the sacraments, the bread and the, and, and the cup together, all of these acts are not irrelevant. That's not what Mike is saying. What he's saying is that this architecture is intended to change us and shape us into God's kind of people. Now, I want to say one more thing. Micah also is not implying that our deepest spiritual need is to alter our behavior. He's not saying you guys are broken, so make sure you be kind, you do justice, and humble yourself under God. It's not that simple. We shouldn't infer from this text that if we're good Christians and we do what Micah says here, then we'll please God. That's not what Micah's going for here. If we look closely at it, Micah is calling us to a humble dependence on God. Hence, walk humbly with God. Not only is he calling us to a humble dependence upon God, but the entire previous chapter, chapter 5, Micah prophesies of the coming Messiah who will deliver God's people and eternally shepherd us into peace. We need the Messiah. This is not about self-help. This is not about your best life now. This is not about any of that stuff. This is about finding our comfort zone in oftentimes the discomfort of the practice of true religion. To walk humbly with our God. To love kindness. And to do justice. And so I want to ask the question for all of us here today. And the question is this. Does this still apply to us as followers of Jesus? Does this still apply to us? Does God still want us to do justice to love kindness, and to walk humbly with him. What do, you, what do you think? Really? I think he does too. I, I can find no scripture, 
Nothing in the, nothing in the Bible that would tell me that we, we're, we're, not, we're not on the hook for this anymore. I think we still, this is what it still looks like to follow God, to follow Jesus. And so I want to transition here. And uh, this is my good friend, Daniel Freeman. Everybody say, what's up, Daniel? Daniel is an elder candidate at our church. Um, so watch him. He's just a candidate, all right? So <laughs> um, I love this brother. We've known each other for, man, well over a decade, I think. And um, he's become a very close friend of mine. I trust him implicitly. I once said a, had a person ask me, what does it mean to trust someone implicitly? Does it, should we say we trust someone explicitly? I don't know. I trust them explicitly and implicitly. Um, I love Daniel. He's a great brother. And um, I love being with him. I love spending time with him. And I think if you knew him, you would too. Daniel, just take a moment. T- t- talk to us about your career, uh, your, your family, just, just your education, just who you are. Okay. So um, we bounced around the States. I was born in the UK. We bounced around the States. My dad was in the Air Force. So been in a lot of places. Uh, our family got here in 2000, graduated high school, went to college. I was down at Ole Miss for a little while. I graduated from Memphis. Um, I enlisted in the Air National Guard. I've been there 12 years now, and um, that's about it. Was that was that quick enough? It was good. Okay. You, don't worry about don't worry about time. It's okay. Okay. You're good. Just the facts. Just the facts. <laughs> um, what would you like to see happen? Just a, just a quick intro to our conversation today. What do you think? What what is what for our church? What would it look like for us to do this justice thing right? Mm, great question. So. <clears throat> A lot of times we talk about justice in different ways, and we don't understand where justice is needed um, and where we need to go with our justice. But if we have the Holy Spirit within us, he's the ultimate bringer of justice. So I would just like to see our our church specifically when we talk about the legacy of Dr. King and racial justice and social justice, to have hearts prone towards justice and to look for avenues of doing justice within our city and within our world. Hmm. That's, that's hard for a lot of us because I think that, for me, I don't, as I've thought about the concept of justice, and justice is to, I think it's to enter into someone else's oppression. Yeah, absolutely. I don't see how you can not do that. Yeah. I don't know how you can do justice and not feel the pain that someone else is feeling. Yeah. And so justice is hard because it means stepping into someone else's or a people group's wound. That's really hard. What do you think about that? I think that's true, man. If we, you know, if we look even within our own city, we see, like you said, the oppression, the hurt, the, the legacy, the centuries of that all around our city. Maybe not in the specific areas that we live in, but if you go a little bit outside of that, you'll see that. And so I think it, it's necessary for us to feel other people's pain and to see their hurt and to know why they're hurting, not just to blame them for hurting um, if we're going to administer justice. I've got to be honest, um, like maybe some of you, uh, the MLK holiday was, was amazing because I still had the Christmas vacation hangover as a kid and I got a day off school. So I appreciate Dr. Martin Luther King for that. I really do. Um, but his life means so much more than a day off of work. And I just wanted to ask you, what does his legacy mean to you? What is- well, to me, his legacy is that of a modern prophet in a lot of ways. I mean, Dr. King in the 60s and during his ministry was basically a voice crying in the streets, just like the prophets of old, how John the Baptist heralded the way for Jesus Christ. Martin Luther King heralded the way for a new wave of civil rights, and so we call it the civil rights era, but he heralded civil rights in our society. 
he was a very unpopular voice in a lot of ways, but he stood up to that. Even within the black community, he received a lot of criticism for the things he was saying and the things he was doing. Um, and people blamed him for a lot of things, even though his ministry was based on nonviolence and basically putting before people's faces, asking them why they weren't concerned about the oppression that was going on in society and why they weren't ashamed, frankly, that they were living in relative comfort while their brothers and sisters, specifically their black brothers and sisters, were being oppressed routinely mm -hmm. in society. We're, um, we're about four decades after um, following his death. Um, what's his enduring legacy? I think it's, it's basically that. It's civil rights. It's the value of all human beings, regardless of race, creed, color, sexual orientation, et cetera, valuing them um, for their life and their humanity and their dignity. Mm -hmm. And as you referenced earlier, he really did that for all of us, not just for black people. Um, his message was about human rights wholesale, right? But as you said... Oppression within society has a grading effect on the souls of all of us. So obviously the oppressed, but also mm -hmm. the oppressor mm -hmm. and the bystander. And so he did great things, not only for black people, but for society as a whole. He, I believe, tangibly lifted the spirit of America. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I th when I think of um, the African-American struggle in our country, uh, for hundreds of years, the message that was sent uh, painfully and excruciatingly was, you aren't a person. Yeah. And when I think about the legacy of Dr. King, I think that to this day there are people who are still saying, look at me, yeah. I am a person. And yeah. he gave, he res like you said, he restored dignity in a lot of ways, in a lot of ways, in, in, in a lot of complex ways to African Americans. I, I want to help go ahead and cut to the chase. Um, um, there are a lot of people who would say that, hey, man, slavery is over. Um, the civil rights movement pretty much has ended. You know, black people can vote now. Um, can we talk for a moment about the long-term effects of slavery yeah. since its termination over 100 years ago? Absolutely, Chris. That's a great question. So a lot of times we talk about slavery in a way that really separates us and the present from the past and the effects of that. And so we talk about the whippings and cotton picking and different things, but... If you can reframe your thoughts on slavery and think of it in two distinct systems, at least that's the way I'm going to talk about it today. So slavery was, in a lot of ways, an economic system, and it was also a social system. And so economically, slavery provided the American South the ability to have a, com excuse me, a competitive advantage over their competition as far as exportable materials. So slave labor enriched the slave owners, but it also enriched the southern states, and it also enriched the federal government with the export tax dollars mm. that we all receive. So those dollars built America in a lot of ways, specifically if you think about how we were going through the Industrial Revolution at that time. And so there was an industrial arms race with Great Britain and other countries to, to be the quickest to be able to have this infrastructure and those tax dollars from slavery and the free labor really helped build America that way. But if you also look at it economically, if you take the value of slaves in 1860, just before the abolition of slavery, and the value of all other forms of wealth in society, they're basically equal. So we had a system where these people were performing free labor, right? But on the other hand, they weren't able to build and sustain wealth for themselves. So they're enriching all these people and unable to sustain personal wealth. Also, slavery was a social system, as we know, a vicious social system designed 
to um, enhance and carry out the economic system that I just discussed. And so the, the social system was built around whites on top and blacks on the bottom, and that was enforced through vicious beatings and um, uh, branding, uh, malicious treatment, gladiator-style death matches. And so we had physical and psychological weapons that were being used to keep black people oppressed. Forced illiteracy? Absolutely. And I'll get to that in, in a minute because that, that's one of the, the most shocking and enduring effects of that, of slavery. And so the message was, your body belongs to me and I can do whatever I want with it. I can use you for entertainment in a gladiator-style death match, even if it means your death, your body's nothing. And as you said, one of the most enduring um, aspects of slavery was forced illiteracy and lack of education. Uh, if you read the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, which I would highly recommend, mm -hmm. Frederick Douglass was an escaped slave turned writer. And one of the things he said was when uh, he was with his second owner, the owner's wife started to educate him and teach him how to read. And he caught her one day and he told her, if you educate him, it's going to make him unfit to be a slave. He's no longer going to be satisfied with his station in life. And so people were treated without dignity, forced illiteracy, uh, forced poverty, and that's a lot of the continuing legacy of um, slavery that in a lot of ways continues till mm -hmm. today. That's interesting you bring that up, Daniel, because, uh, you know, I often try to use the analogy of my own life um, <clears throat> and thinking about how generationally a, a whole ethnic group can be dehumanized yeah. through forced illiteracy. We're talking, <coughs> I mean, we're talking hundreds of years years of forced illiteracy. We're not talking about, uh, you know, a family that, you know, good old Uncle Roy never went to college. You know, we're talking about hundreds of years uh, uh, of forced illiteracy and the impact that that has cumulatively on succeeding generations. And so, like, for instance, just my own life, um, I was raised in a home with two parents who were highly educated. And so even when at my worst, which was pretty much kindergarten through, high, through 12th grade, um, even when I was at my worst and I didn't want to study and I didn't want to do my best and apply myself and, you know, all of my other issues I had, um, I knew not because they ever demanded that I go to college. They never did. But that was that because they were that way. It put an expectation on me that I should be that as well. It was, my dad never said Bennett's go to college, but simply because they both had master's degrees, they might as well have said that. And I'm thinking, my goodness, if that was true for one generation, how many generations would fill 350 or 400 years? And what would that do to an ethnic group in our country over four centuries if generation after generation after generation after generation was not only illiterate, but dehumanized in some of the worst and oppressive ways imaginable. Imaginable. Um, after slavery, um, that was pretty anticlimactic for a lot of folks, uh, uh, black people, not only in the South, but everywhere, because there was a new system of injustice. It was a little more subtle, um, called Jim Crow. Talk to us about that for a minute. So basically, Jim Crow was a set of laws in the American South that, again, enforced the social and economic systems that we came out of in slavery. And it, it maintained the social order of blacks on the bottom, whites on top. 
And uh, if you're familiar with South Africa and apartheid and the way there's a stark contrast in how people are treated in society, it was basically that. We just don't call it um, apartheid. But again, the, the systems continued both socially and economically because in Jim Crow, well, one, you know, slaves, there was a promise of 40 acres and a mule so that slaves could uh, restart their lives and have an economic and social foot up that never materialized. And so a lot of slaves were reduced to sharecropping excuse me, former slaves were reduced to sharecropping, which was a land lease system where the owner of the land would lease a portion of it to me, I would grow crops there, and I would give him a portion of that, which sounds pretty fair, right? However, within Jim Crow and, and sharecropping, et cetera, I would have to also buy my seed, my fertilizer, all my household goods from my landowner's store, which would sell to me at inflated prices so that it can... It, it caused an, another system of debt peonage. I could never get out of that debt, no matter how many how much crop was produced. And so my children would then be enslaved and take on that debt and carry it on. Um, mm -hmm. So again, we see the inability to build wealth that we saw in slavery, but we see this wealth gap increasing because now instead of just not having money, people had debt. And so we see that being reinforced and basically a re an economic re-enslavement um, in society. And then socially in Jim Crow, you know, we, we all know, I think bits and pieces, Izzy, if you'll put that uh, Jim Crow slide up, we know that um, it was terrible. We know about us not being able to uh, share lunch counters together. Um, as the sign says, white and colored restrooms. So we have separation in society. I'll even never forget my dad when we moved here. Um, in the facility that he was working in, there was a gentleman he was supervising that had worked there so long that he could recall a day when he and his black coworkers had to eat their lunch in the men's restroom because they weren't allowed in the cafeteria where the white men were eating their lunch. So we saw that sort of uh, social separation. Mm -hmm. Also, even simple stuff like if I was walking down a street and a white man was approaching me, I would have to get off the street, or excuse me, get off the sidewalk, take my cap off, and show him respect or else, you know, my life and my body could be broken and taken. We also saw throughout Jim Crow, one of the more sinister elements was all the different um, signage of blacks there, as you see in the top left or even in the, the bottom right, caricatures of black bodies as lazy, as dumb, as uh, poor, um, <clears throat> which, as you said, led to a further dehumanization. But the result is if you can dehumanize a person, then you can also justify your inhumane treatment of mm -hmm. them. And so we saw that throughout um, Jim Crow. We also saw really vicious things like lynchings. If you'll see uh, Emmett Till there, I guess that's, I keep turning around different ways. The bottom left there, Emmett Till, he was lynched. His body was beaten in a picture we wouldn't even dare show here um, because he spoke to a white woman. There are 3,500 lynchings, just what we have recorded during the Jim Crow era. And so the message again was clear. A lynching wasn't just, we, all, we know it usually is someone hanging from a tree, but a, a lynching was any sort of killing as punishment that was outside the law. And so we saw um, bodies being left in the street, bodies being left hanging, which was a sign to all, don't get out of line. It enforced the social order. If you get out of line, your body will be taken. Mm. Um, and there's little consequence also from law enforcement because black people can testify against white people. Again, this is here in America. Black people can testify against white people, and then white people had little reason. You would have little reason to testify against another white person because that would upset your whole social order. I hate to call you out like that, but okay. white people. I hope, I hope, 
what I meant was clear. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I accept that. Um, but if you, to put the horrors of Jim Crow in context, between about 1915 and 1970, there were about 10 million black people left the South, left their homes, their social networks, everything, to flee to the North, the Midwest, and the West because the Jim Crow South was so terrible. There's 7 million people living in Tennessee today, so that's if more than the whole state of Tennessee upped and left because we couldn't stand to live here any longer. It's pretty horrendous. When I think about the, the issue of lynchings, which is uh, you know, horrific, of course, I think about maybe the greatest horror of my life, which was 9-11. I think a lot of people would say the same thing. 9-11 was horrific. Um, over 3,000 people uh, killed with, you know, just, just murdered, just murdered. And I remember the entire week, the news was on all hours of the day. Yeah. Remember that, guys? Yeah. Uh, for, for at least for several days. The news was on nonstop. There were no shows. There were no <clears throat> baseball games, football games. It was just the news. And everyone was just in a stupor. We, we, we could not believe what had happened to us. It was, and a lot of thinkers and philosophers say that that changed our country in ways that we still haven't really, we don't understand. I mean, you think about the way that it changed, for instance, media. Uh, notice how many television shows and media and, and movies have come out since 9-11 that focus on a post-apocalyptic world that has no hope. Uh, everything from shows like The Walking Dead to even like Breaking Bad and, and other shows and all the zombie genre and all these other shows that have come out. You know, the best shows today are the shows that I think a lot of critics agree are the, are the most raw, are the most brutal, yeah. are the most, quote, real. And all of these shows share the same thread. Hopelessness, no sense of uh, a, a decreasing sense of human dignity, this is how 9-11 affected just the movies in Hollywood. How does, I mean, imagine how countless thousands may, or more being exposed as a black person to the story of countless thousands of people in your ethnic group being killed for no reason except bigotry and the impact that that would have on the psychology of a whole ethnic group cumulatively over centuries. Yeah. Um, I may be getting ahead of you, so tell me if I am, but I'm thinking about Jim Crow and economic oppression and how that leads to the building and the establishment of the American ghetto. Yeah. Because there's a lot of resentment in our culture against the ghetto as though those people need to get that cleaned up and I wish they would quit behaving that way. Right. But that didn't just materialize overnight. Yeah. The ghetto is a story that has emerged from America. You want to yeah. talk for a second about that? Yeah, so basically what happened in 1934, the Federal Housing Administration was created. And what they did was, it was really a boon for America. What they did was lower, okay, let me back up one second. At the time, if you were to take out a home loan, you were gonna to have to pay about 50% up front, and then you would have on average five years to satisfy the rest of that debt. 
And so what the FHA did was come in and federally back those loans so, that, so they could decrease the amount up front to the 20% we know now and then the, the length of the loan to about 30 years. So they effectively established the middle class in America because most people are living in cities, et cetera, and very few people own homes. And so they allowed home ownership, which is one of the greatest wealth accumu accumulation mechanisms in America, they allowed access to that to more people. However, black people were explicitly prohibited from taking advantage of that benefit. And Izzy, there's, if you put on that map slide, in addition to that, what they did was send surveyors out to various large cities across America, and they surveyed um, by race who was living in separate areas of the city. And so if, they were, if, they were an, if there was an overwhelmingly large black population, they would redline it, as it were. And then if there are moderate blacks, they would give it another. And then if there are few blacks, another. If there are no blacks, another color. And so not only did they not allow blacks to take advantage of federal loans, they also didn't let anyone take advantage of that federal loan, an FHA-backed loan, if you were living within one of these redlined zones. So effectively, they separated the races and housing. In addition to that, because blacks weren't allowed to take advantage of, the, of um, federally backed home, home lending, they had to rely on contract lending, which is somewhat difficult to explain, but basically lending at inflated prices. So if a home costs, let's just say the mortgage is $1,000, but I'm paying $1,500 a month to own a home because that's the American dream, right? So now I have $500 less discretionary income or income above what I pay in my bills. Um, to spend on other things, which means that Sears and Roebuck and Target and Walmart aren't going to come to my neighborhood because the federal government has explicitly said these people don't have money and we're putting mechanisms in place for them to continue to be impoverished. And so we had the separation of the races. We had... And if I could just cut in really quick, yeah. you know, we see in urban environments, which are pr predominantly black in our country, in most cities, or a lot of cities... Um, we see areas that, as a result, even though redlining may not exist technically anymore, the legacy of that is still impacting the poor in America because for a lot of people who don't have transportation, the only place they can go to get food is a corner grocery. Exactly. So you're talking potato chips, no, little or no vegetables, little or no fruit. Exactly. Um, and so that, that also leads to a lack of health also right. in, the, uh, in the urban ghetto. Exactly. And lack of access to gainful employment. And so I can't, if, if, especially because we're talking about 1934, if there's not mass, mass transportation, if the buses won't come to my neighborhood, et cetera, et cetera, and I, I can't find employment within the area, then we continue with these processes to um, enforce poverty within yeah. these areas. So to say to somebody, you know, why don't you just get a job? Yeah. And that person doesn't have transportation, and that person spends... Up to, I've heard stories in, in Memphis of people spending up to three and four hours commuting both ways, the total, commuting both ways to get to work. And so that family who may have landed a good job uh, working at FedEx, you know, out on the um, loading docks or something, they're having to cover childcare to provide for their children uh, the extra hours, hours plus per day that they're spending. And so it's almost defeating the entire point of having a, of getting a good job. I mean, it's 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 a cycle and it's vicious. Right. Absolutely. And then in addition to that, Chris, during Jim Crow, we saw voting discrimination where um, the uh, let me look at my notes here. Fifteenth Amendment 
1870 allowed us the right to vote, right? Um, and then the 19th Amendment in 1919 allowed women the right to vote. So now, on paper, black and white men, women have the right to vote. But um, they instituted in, in the southern states, because of Jim Crow, part of the Jim Crow laws, a poll tax and a literacy tax. So if I were to go vote, I would have a special tax I had to pay, and I would have to take a literacy test. You already spoke earlier to the fact that um, we had centuries of illiteracy, forced illiteracy. Only black people had to take those tests and pay that tax because there's a literal grandfather clause that if your grandfather had the right to vote, then you didn't have to pay a tax and you didn't have to take a test. So you disenfranchised black voters and didn't allow them the right to vote. So they didn't have a say in society like getting rid of Jim Crow, you know, putting people in office who would advocate for them. Also, education discrimination was huge. Again, we've referenced that a few times, but separate but equal in a system that we know was anything but equal. We had mm. white children going to schools and being able to take advantage of um, centuries of their ancestors building wealth and funneling that into schools where black children went to underfunded um, schools where they were largely uneducated because we were separate, disintegrated. I want to make a point that if anybody has any questions about this data, um, uh, the information that we're referencing, please reach out uh, to Daniel and myself, yeah. preferably Daniel, and I'm not joking about that because he really does want to talk to you. We want to create an environment in our church where it's safe to have these conversations. And I know this guy would have a cup of coffee with anybody in this church, anybody, as, as would I. But um, If you pay for it. <laughs> Man. You are, you're going to be a great elder. <laughs> um, um, I want to talk about a divisive subject. We had to have one of those today at least, you know. Um, I want to talk about the subject of police brutality. Yeah. So. And when we say police brutality, we are not saying that all or even most police are brutal. We are talking about a phenomenon that has taken place over the centuries, or, or sorry, the decades in our country in which black people have been victimized by uh, institutional authorities in our country. And so I just want to say really quickly, if you are a person who works with law enforcement, we have the utmost respect to you. I'm not throwing you a bone right now. I really do mean that. We thank God for you. But it doesn't um, erase or negate the fact that there have been instances of police brutality in our country. And uh, I just wanted to take a couple of minutes and talk about that. Yeah, I'm thankful for what you said, and I, I agree fully with that. Um, I appreciate the police. I think that's in a lot of ways a thankless job, um, putting on the uniform and going out in the streets to um, protect our society. And so I appreciate that. Because we would live that. in chaos without the police. Absolutely. We really would, in ways that we don't even know. At the same time, like you said, we have to recognize that police brutality isn't a made-up issue. Um, if you just look at the stats, black people, we're just talking about unarmed black people are killed at a much higher level, you know, than other people in society. And that really causes fear within me and a lot of the other black people that I know that if I'm stopped by the police, you know, and I make a wrong move because I'm nervous, he's nervous, I'm nervous, you know, I could be shot and killed and that killing could be justified, you know? Um, when I see images like Michael Brown laying on the ground, dead and dying for four and a half hours, four and a half hours his body lay there in the hot Missouri summer sun, regardless of what happened before that, 
four and a half hours. His body was literally baking there in the sun. And it makes me think back to Jim Crow, you know, where bodies were left. Right or wrong, that's the way I and a lot of black people I know take that. Um, when I see Sandra Bland, if you'll put up that picture, Izzy, um, who was pulled over for not using her turn signal down in Texas, and she, the officer asked her to put her cigarette out, which constitutionally she didn't have to, and she refused. Her body was beaten. She was taken out of the car forcefully and body slammed to the ground. And that hurts. That could be my sister. You know, that could be my mother. That could be one of my sisters here in the church. Um, when I see Eric Courtney Harris in Tulsa, Oklahoma, who uh, the officer who shot him said that he was reaching for his taser, accidentally grabbed his revolver, shot him. And as he's laying there on the ground and they're putting handcuffs on him, so the officer said it was an accident that he shot him. And he's saying, I can't breathe. And the officer says, basically, screw your breath in more colorful language that I can't use here. And so that hurts, man. That hurts that, as I said, I've, I've served this country for 12 years in the Air Force. I love this country. I think this country is great. But to think that this country may not value my life and my existence as much as I value the existence of this country really hurts. And then, you know, even further, last week, the Department of Justice released a scathing report on police officers in Chicago and how they're treating the black community there systematically. Um, and then even, you know, the Michael Brown report that our media slung far and wide the report that his hands weren't up when he was shot, which I accept that report as hard as it is. But then when they also released a port, report saying that that same police department was guilty of wanton harassment of the citizenry, arbitrary fines to the black citizens there, um, distributing racial images and slurs and, and, and jokes throughout the police department. That hurts, man. The people that I'm entrusting to protect my life are making a Jim Crow mockery of me. And it, it hurts. And so that's just one of the other things that we have to deal with in our society. As a white dude, what can people like me do when instances like this happen in our society? I mean, I can't stop police brutality. Yeah. I can't stop aggression against police. I can't stop any of this stuff. But one of the things that gets me is when my black brothers and sisters are hurting, yeah. sometimes I don't know what to say or what to do. What would you say to us as a church? That's a great question. Um, I think like in any tragedy, when especially unarmed black people are killed or hurt by the police or whatever, when we see these instances of police brutality, it hurts, like I said, myself and all the black people I know. And so I don't... I don't want to dig through that person's past and all the other things they did wrong. I don't want to be told, you know, well, this is the regulation and this and that and for it to be justified. Just or not, it hurts. And so I, I want people to understand, which is part of the reason we're here today. I, and I think like in any tragedy in life, you just want people to understand and be empathetic and not try to prove you wrong or necessarily debate you on the facts um, because that, that's just not helpful. And that doesn't erase the hurt or the pain. And so one of the things I think is so critical, um, you know, as we talk about civil rights and everything Dr. King did, that wouldn't have been possible without white people. That wouldn't have been possible without people like you who 
I think, correct me if I'm wrong, hear the Lord asking them to have that empathy and to embrace our past and especially people of influence um, to stand up, you know, for civil rights, to stand up for black people. Um, And so I think it takes that empathy, understanding, and just being there. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I know that's a complex issue. I know that maybe there's some folks sitting here now and you're, your chest may be tightening, your knuckles might be white. Um, we all bring a story to conversations like this. What I don't hear Daniel saying is he's berating us with stories of injustice suffered against blacks. I hear him saying, understand, that when suffering happens, it resonates in, a, in an electric way with a whole history and a legacy that I bear, that my family bears, that my grandparents bore, that my great-grandparents bore, and so on and so forth. These are powerful, powerful stories. And I think if I, if I could just uh, speak for my black brothers and sisters in here, and, and please correct me if, uh, see me and correct me if I, if I miss something here, because I really do want to know and understand I think people just want us to love them and be with them when they're hurting. I really do. Um, I think when you're hurting, the last thing you want me to give you is a Bible verse. Um, When you're suffering, the last thing you want is, you know, hey, listen to this podcast. This is really good, you know. Um, I think what you want to know is just that I will be a quiet presence with you in your pain. I won't be like Job's friends who said, you must be guilty of something, and so why is this? Because God doesn't let bad things happen to good people, but rather, can I just be a quiet presence with people who are hurting? I think if I can call my white brothers and sisters to do that as well, rather than, because, uh, you know, once, once the next story happens, and sadly, I hate that we have to say it that way, when the next story happens, people are going to be on Facebook, people are going to be ranting, And I think maybe it's appropriate for us just to be with people. I'm not saying we should ignore the truth, ignore fact. I'm just saying, be reminded that we go to church with people, and some of these people are on your Facebook feed. We go to church with people and are one with people in the Spirit, in Christ, um, who are having an entirely different response and emotional reaction to some of these instances. And we we should be willing to go be with them in the middle of that, or at least be sensitive to that and guard our mouths well guard them well. Um, Anything else we want to talk about? I think I'd just like to say one last thing to kind of sum a few things up. So we talked about a lot of issues and there's a lot more that we could have gotten to. But when we talk about housing discrimination, education discrimination, voting discrimination, all those things are still happening in our society today and meet me for a cup of coffee, we'll talk about it. Um, but what that's led to is basically an impoverished black society, as we talked about. And if you survey any poor society throughout the world, there's increased crime, alcoholism, drug use, um, health concerns, as you said. And so that's really affecting the black society um, today. And we assume a lot of times if you just work harder, you'll get more. But the greatest wealth building uh, or the most common wealth building mechanism is um, inheritance, the money that you leave for your kids. 
And so poverty has caused some really stark issues in our society, including one, which is increased abortion rates um, within the black community. A, a poor black woman is five times more likely to seek an abortion than a white woman. Mm -hmm. We're 13% of the population, but aborted, black babies account for 36% of aborted babies. I know our, our church advocates for the unborn. And so we have to think about things like that um, as we're going out in society um, and doing justice. If I can say one last thing, Chris. Mm -hmm. I read a, a study not long ago by the Barney Group that does Christian research, and basically what they found was that Christians believe that race is an issue in society at a much lower rate than other segments of society, right? Martin Luther King was able to do everything that he was able to do, I believe, because he had the Holy Spirit within him. It's going to take us, it's going to take Christians in the streets, in the boardroom, in wherever to do justice in all these areas. But if we don't believe that race is an issue in society, then we're not going to make any headway. It's like there's a doctor in the room that doesn't think I'm sick, so he's not going to heal me, essentially. So it's, it's on us, it's up to us to continue Dr. King's legacy today. He said that justice delayed is justice denied. And so we have to do justice now. Mm. Amen. Amen.